Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Good morning. It's two minutes past nine. You're tuned to 102.73 Triple R. Might be listening via rrr.org.au, maybe via our radio on demand service. It might not be Sunday morning, but right now, at this present time, it is. This is Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name's Bron Burton. And my name's Cade Mills. Hi, Cade. I'm doing very well, Bron. Good. S- speaking of on demand, I was listening to Phoebe Square's maps yesterday in the morning, and it was Sam Pang was on. Oh, yes. And I just had this sort of flashback. I'm like, what is this? Like a morning show from many it years ago? It was fantastic. Yeah, it I was loved great. It. Yeah. I was listening. Um, I was sneak listening at work, you know, get those opportunities to just, just you know, get my app going on my phone and pop in the earbuds, um, and and on my way home as well it was fabulous. Yeah, yeah good was, fun. Yep, and hopefully many of you are out there listening on demand in the future. Yes. Yeah. But right now we're in the present. We are. And thank you very much uh, to Tim Thorpe for his last three hours of Vital Bits, and Andrew Minga for Soulful Bits. Lovely. As always, yep. Tim's the consummate professional. <laughs> you can catch Tim next Saturday morning for uh, his next two instalments of Vital Bits. Today's program, uh, interesting. We've got some fun stuff. We've got something for everyone. A bit eclectic this morning. Uh, very excited to be welcoming Brett Ditchfield shortly in for uh, his inaugural segment, Cabin Boy Diaries. Brett's our new... Uh, <laughs> Good to see you got let out of the cabin. <laughs> <laughs> For today, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, Brett's our new sailing reporter, so very excited to talk to Brett. He's going to talk about the myths and mysteries of crossing Bass Strait in a small yacht. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. So, uh, if you've got a question for Brett, you can um, post that on our Facebook page. And um, we'll load that one up when oh, we put our we're first. We're becoming on. a request show too. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> might have a might have a question for him about you know, crossing Bass Strait. Next, we'll be doing phone-ins. <laughs> we used to do phone-ins. <laughs> um, then we're going to catch up with AJ on the Mornington Peninsula. He's going to talk about this week's diving options, but also talk about a very special clean-up event happening next weekend in Frankston. So this one is hilariously fun. Yeah, I'm looking forward it to hearing be... more about this one. Yep. Uh, then Dave Donnelly uh, from Killer Wales, Australia. Dave's been in Tonga. Lucky Dave. So uh, Or Tonga. Tonga or Tonga? What would you say? Tonga. Tonga. Tonga? I've always said Tonga, but it doesn't sound right, does yeah, it? Yeah, I know. No. Let's ask Dave because well, he's there been there. Hard-hitting interviews. Yeah. <laughs> it's important to get these yeah. things right. So uh, we're going to talk to Dave uh, about what he's been doing over there and he wants to talk specifically about the ethics of whale swim tourism, which is something that um, I'm pretty, you know, keen to know more about, the impacts and effects and, and ethics of whale swim tourism and the revision of the Tongan whale swim regulations and we're also going to hit Dave up for a bit of a report about what's happening on whale migration patterns because we haven't done that for a few weeks. No, fantastic. Mm. Be good to get him in. It's interesting with the whale swim tourism mm-hmm. as far as, you know, it has actually saved a lot of um, fishermen with leaving whales and what have you as opposed to you know the old days of hunting and mm. we've actually advanced that far that we now have to sort of draw up these guidelines around you know these tourism businesses that are booming around whale swim so i mean it's a good problem to have mm. and it'll be interesting to hear what dave's got to say as far as who are the good guys and the bad guys or things that people are doing well, well and things that people aren't doing well yeah and just generally about the ethics of 
of the tourism industry as it pertains to whale watching and how there might be some variations in what's considered acceptable or not acceptable. But I'm really interested in these uh, Tongan whale swim regulations and the fact they've been revised. I find that fascinating. So we'll talk to Dave about that. And then, Cade, we're going to be very strict with our time today because we do often find that we get so enthralled by our own discussions and our guests. It's not so much us, it's our guests who are so wonderful. Um, But we're going to make sure we leave plenty of time for this Dragon Quest Yeah, we're going to be talking about dragons at the end of the show. So this is actually a project of mine that I'm working on through the Victorian National Parks Association. And instead of interviewing myself or getting you to interview me, I have some students who have been helping with some science communication work. Um, Actually, Dr. Jen's students from Einstein and Gogo. And they're going to come in this afternoon, or this afternoon, at the end of the show. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully they're not coming in that late. At the end of the show to talk about the project, I guess what they've learned, but even just the basics, you know, what do we know? about dragons in the sea excellent radio marinara's answer to dungeons and dragons that's it (laughs) awesome big show so let's hop into it uh we'll start with a weather forecast i reckon kate you've got it in front of you what are we looking at today? we do so for the rest of the day we're getting to a high of 14 um cloudy very high chance of showers most likely during the afternoon and evening so get out there now with your um Listening to the, while you're listening to the show, chance of thunderstorms in the afternoon, winds west northwest 30 to 45 kilometres, becoming west 20 to 30 kilometres in the afternoon. And so for the rest of the week, we're starting to get a bit of spring in the air. So tomorrow we've got top of 13 with some showers easing. Tuesday, top of 14, cloudy. And then it starts to look nice. So midweek's going to be 19 on Wednesday, Ooh, mostly nice. sunny. Uh, Thursday, shower 2 and 18, Friday 17, and then on Saturday 18. So we've got a little bit of rain sort of mixed in with that, so it's good old spring weather. And out on the water, the tides, the high tide at Point Lonsdale was at 6.49 this morning, and the low tide's around lunchtime today, 11.52, so consider that if you're going for a dive or a surf. And if you're going for a surf, there is a few foot of swell around, um, with those west northwesterly winds, you want to find sort of a spot that's sort of nice and protected, particularly with it going around the corner. So I think either side, particularly the surf coast, is probably best with the west and Phillip Island. And as Dr. Beach says, you don't go telling people where to go because, you know, you might lose your kneecaps at some stage next time you're in the surf. <laughs> <laughs> if, of course, if you want the latest up-to-date surfing conditions, go to swellnet.com because they've got everything live and current. Oh, I've got a bone to pick with Swellnet. They don't open up their forecast until nine o'clock oh that's interesting they actually keep it sort of hidden under a wall until nine o'clock unless you subscribe so if you do some of the local surf stores will actually have their own forecast that they do themselves so if you know go to your local surf store support your local surf stores yeah good one thanks kate a couple of quick uh, things to mention before we put a track on. Um, I've been carting this around um, for a couple of weeks. Uh, came out during Radiothon period when we were completely <sighs> in a different zone altogether, weren't we, Kate? It was a little bit busy. It was a bit easier to um, get a park this morning because <laughs> unlike um, Tim Thorpe, who has a grand palace at the station, we don't live here. <laughs> his own private And we have park. to travel in, yeah. <laughs> He's got his own bat cave under the, the building. the chauffeur out the front, Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so uh, this is some sobering uh, statistics that have come out from New South Wales uh, looking at the impact of shark netting. And so not, not in terms of going out and fishing for sharks, but setting up nets around beaches to prevent sharks from coming in too close to swimmers. So 
These results actually have come out from the Department of Primary Industries. Um, it's as a result of their shark meshing bather protection program, 2018-2019, um, their annual performance report. This is really quite shocking that um, 51 beaches from Newcastle uh, to Sydney and Wollongong, so relatively small area, 395 marine animals were caught. Guess how many were the targeted species that they were wanting to prevent? Oh, I reckon they'd be lucky if there's two. So there were 23. Oh. Okay. So out of 395 marine animals, only 23 were the targeted species of um, tiger, great white. Now, I question great white. I thought they were protected, but anyway, and bull sharks. So 372 non-target animals included 86 smooth hammerhead sharks, 20 Australian cow-nose rays, five dolphins and 15 turtles. And uh, of those um, uh, animals that were caught, 238 died. Wow. So I'll go back to that. Only 23 were the targeted species out of 395 caught. It's pretty sobering, isn't it? Yeah, it's the shotgun tactic for you, isn't it? Mm. And there were 11 shark attacks in New South Wales waters last year and two of them happened at actual netted beaches. So they were at beaches where the nets were set up. We'll leave that one there. Yeah, there was recently, um, and I'll have to find this and we can post it on Facebook, but uh, there was a scientist or a marine scientist graduate who, a student who... Uh, I think it was a student or maybe she's finished, but actually swam out to the shark nets and has recorded some footage over time and actually shown a lot of these non-target species sort of entangled in the nets. And um, I'll put it on the Facebook page. I'll send a link through for that, but it might actually be someone worth getting in to have a talk about what she sort of saw because the shark nets themselves aren't very big and they don't really cover much and it's I think it's more a psychological thing than, a, thing. Yeah, than actually doing any good, which... The results speak for themselves. Break that down in percentage terms. That's 95% of the animals that are caught are not sharks. Yeah. And most of them die. And 95% of the beach is not protected. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, we might pick that one up, I reckon. I think, I think we, we should. We should. Yeah. Um, and the last big, just a quick shout out to uh, Harm who sent this one in. Um, this is good news. Um, Baywinds from Baywinds. We are going to get someone from Baywinds on to talk. Terry Allen, our dive reporter, has been uh, asking us to do this for some time. Uh, so Bay winds, uh, Bay water temperature statistics. This is from Port Phillip Bay, and uh, we are past the Bay's coldest day of the year. Oh, so, Harm sent us a message via Facebook. Thank you so much, just to let us know. Good news, the temperatures are on their way back up. We're on the up. You're listening to Radio Marinara here on Three Triple R. Time to welcome Brett Ditchfield. <laughs> Good morning. Oh, Captain Breddy is one of your friends, has just said on Facebook. Well, I was going to go with something salty, but I thought, no, well, let's just keep it land-based <laughs> and out with a good morning. So, yes. Uh, Welcome. Why, thank you. Well, I was going to say, I spoke to you at the start of the year from Hobart. Yes. So, um, we spoke the about wooden boat the, festival. Yeah. yeah, so I thought I would continue on from that. We spoke about the thing, and I thought I'd explain how I actually got to Hobart, because uh, it was involved, yes. So... So, yes, why, let's start with why. Why did you go to Hobart? Well, it's the, uh, the My State Australian Wooden Boat Festival, which is the biggest in the southern, southern Hemisphere. It's on every two years. So this was the second time we've sailed across. So to be part of a wooden boat festival, you can pop along, you can fly over, but to be really part of it, you've got to sail over there. You've got to earn the stripes. So. Is, is, there a, is there kind of a pecking order? So for those who haven't sailed over, they kind of, you know... Oh, <laughs> do you get a badge when you turn up yeah. on your boat? Is that what you're saying? I was going to say no, but oh, so completely. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that smug satisfaction that yeah. you kind of 
radiate. So, yeah. yeah. Is it also the smaller the boat that you sail across, the larger, the higher your status? Well, see, that's interesting because, you know, people look up to the bigger boats, but, you know, the adventurers, mm. smaller boats. So the trouble is we're in the middle, not big, not okay. small. Yeah. So we don't have that much kudos, but, you know... It's still good when someone says, you sailed across on that. Yeah. It's like, yeah, we did. So yeah. let's, let's describe that. What was, the, what was the boat that you sailed over? Uh, we've got a little 30-foot wooden, well, it's just under 30-foot wooden yacht. So double ender. Um, look, it sleeps too comfortably. Three, bit of a crowd. Yep. So it was actually myself and my son sailed across and uh, back for both years. So, uh, yeah, which was interesting. Has he done much sailing before? Not a great deal. Okay. Uh, I don't know whether he will do much more either. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the first question everyone asks, you know, oh, we sailed across Bass Strait, and it's like, oh, was it scary? And it's like, mm, yes, if you're not, if you're well prepared, it's not. And I do like the quote from Abel Tasman when he first sighted uh, Tasmania. He says, uh, too far south for spices and too close to the rim of the earth to be inhabited by anything but freaks and monsters. <gasps> oh, my God. Oh, wow. So that was back in 1642. I don't think Bass Strait, they realised Bass Strait was there at that moment, but that was his description of no, Tasmania. Well, nor uh, a large number of Aboriginal people who've lived there for thousands well, and thousands of years. Hence, it's kind of, yeah, it is quite cringeworthy. Yeah. But back to the fear. Um, yeah. If you're well prepared, you should be able to cope. And uh, you've got to watch the weather window. There's a few tricky... Uh, what most people don't understand about Bastrade, it's not a desert. There is so much life out there. Mm. Like, there's so many shearwaters. There was so many other types of birds. We would um, sail through flocks of them that you could just see to the horizon. It was just dark with birds. There would be penguins popping up, you know... Dolphins every half hour just following you along. Whales, even flying fish. We had a couple of flying fish land on oh, board, wow. which I thought that only happened in the tropics. But uh, What did you do when that happened? Oh, they flipped off. and Okay, got, so you but, didn't have to go pick them up. No, then. no, but we did scream, get all excited. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's about over 50 islands through Bass Strait. So if you can picture Wilson's Prom, yep. it's similar to that, that granite kind of that white sand. So all through from um, Wilson's Prom, to the east of the um, northeastern tip of uh, um, Tassie is all kind of like Wilson's Prom. So, and all down even that eastern coast of Tasmania. So, is that sort of the trajectory you take? You sort of head towards the like hug the coast a bit, head towards the prom, and then skip across the strait? Is that yeah. how it works? Well, we're heading to Hobart, so we're going down the east coast. The yeah. west coast of Tassie is quite fearsome. It has quite a fearsome reputation because that's gets a lot of weather, weather westerly westerly winds, and also it's all the Roaring Forties hitting that. So it gets quite a lot of swell there, and there's not many safe harbours that you can shelter from. So the common thing is to head east. Yeah. yeah. So once you get out of the head, straight down to Wilson's Prom, uh, then across to Deal Island, which is kind of the centre point of uh, the Bass Strait. Now, Deal Island's quite well known. It's got a lighthouse on and a lighthouse keeper. And there's three little islands there, uh, Deal, oh. Island, Deal Island, Erith Island and Dover Island. So someone still lives on Deal Island? Yeah, oh, yeah, wow. yeah. So, I thought um, they'd all been automated. Um, no, because there's no. also someone on Gabo Island. Yeah, they right. are automated, but I think they just do maintenance. And 
I think they do studies too. Uh, yeah, all kinds of studies about it too. So yeah, yeah. Gabo Island. It's a yes. You're right. That yeah, we used to speak with someone who made the trek out there. Yes, uh, from Parks Victoria, I think. I think they are because yeah. we uh, years ago called into Gabo Island and actually got to go up the Lighthouse Island. Oh wow, uh, Lighthouse Island, Lighthouse on yep. Gabo Island. So yeah, <laughs> so um, yeah, and then so that's the middle. And I mean, if you time the weather okay, you're fine. Yeah, it's you just got to watch out for the weather. So, uh, and because there's so many islands, we pulled in each night and anchored somewhere. So, you know, we'd work out what side of the island, which is a safe anchorage to get out of the weather. How many nights did it take you, or did you do you budget for when you're talking about this safe weather window? Well, it's taken us 12 days to get down there one time, and then we're in a rush one other time coming home to beat the weather. And we just sailed straight through and did it in five days. Oh, so, okay. Yeah. So it can be quite variable. Yeah. It can, yeah, yeah. And you've kind of got to let, you know, allow a bit of time. Yeah. But yeah, but I don't like sailing through the night. I'm, I, I do get seasick. So yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. I do too. Yeah. And I have to admit, when we were talking about the fear factor earlier of crossing mm. Bass Strait, that would be one of the few things that yeah. would put me off doing it. Well, how do you cope with that? Well, the best cure is, as they say, go sit under a tree. But uh, <laughs> but if you push through, you normally can get through. I, yeah. I'm a bit of a sensitive type. I used to get car sick. You know, any any merry-go-round, I'd throw up. No worries. Yeah. So um, I do get sick. But if you keep at it, you'll get over it. Okay. And then Your body just sort of adjusts itself. It does adjust. So yeah. yeah. I used to find that when I did a lot of diving. I was diving every weekend for a while. And that was something that I found, that in time I stopped being seasick. Yeah. And I'm, it wasn't a psychological thing. Um, because I was just as confident on the water, you know, I'd, I'd give it six months to get back on a boat and I'd be seasick again. Yeah, yeah. So there is something that your body adjusts in some way. It does. I've even got seasick in my bunk sleeping because yeah, the right. overnight the boat's been rocking and rolling and I've just woken up seasick and it's like, oh, how does this happen? <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. And then the other tricky bit you've got to time, it's not so much, it's not a straight sail across. You've got to get tides right. So uh, bank straight on the uh, tip of Tassie mm-hmm. uh, is a very tricky one to get through because uh, the tide rushes through there about three to five knots. So you've kind of got to go through with the tide or otherwise you're just going nowhere. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. But it's doable. And the, there's an amazing amount of boats going back and forth that you don't realise. Like, you know, little boats sailing back and forth. And when you look into the history, that was one of the most traded routes, mm. you know, from Victoria to Tassie. There is so much history and so many shipwrecks from the 1800s and that, that it was just amazing how much shippage went through there. So, If you wanted to do that, if you want to have that experience, but you don't have a boat and you're not connected, is there a way that people can, can kind of crew or do any kind of volunteer work or are there like charters that take people on to have, other than obviously Spirit of Tasmania, which is bit different yeah yeah um um probably i mean without getting to know someone with a boat probably the best the next wooden boat festival all the big tall ships head down either from sydney from melbourne and that and they sell berths on board so okay probably so you can have that experience by going on one of the tall ships that would be the wow, best that'd yeah be amazing and you get to dock into uh hobart in the midst of the festival too so that would probably be the best if you're looking yeah yeah at sailing across bass Strait. you're looking somewhat skeptical here oh no i was thinking when you get there you get the kudos for having sailed across as well that would too yeah well often a few mates said i'll come i'll come next time and i've looked at them and said realize you you committed once once you're on you can't get off and it's (laughs) like oh okay yeah (laughs) (laughs) so there are quite a few people walking around with wobbly legs after like i've always found that i've spent like a week out on the sea and then you get off the boat and yeah. that 
tends to play havoc with me more than being on the seat. Well, yeah, you get land sick, as in yeah. you kind of notice in the shower, kind of yeah. small space, and suddenly everything's spinning. And oh, I quite enjoy that. You know, it's like a badge <laughs> of honour. So yeah, is just a throwback to your childhood or something? Kind is it where well, your misadventure days? Yeah. Yes. I, I must tell a story though. Um, coming back one year, it was the middle of winter, and it was my son's 18th, and I promised we'd get home for his 18th birthday. And we weren't going to do that. We uh, we couldn't get past... Um, we got up to Killer Cranky. We had to pull into Killer Cranky. And he said it was the, the day of his birthday. The he, What he wanted for his 18th birthday was just a hot shower and a hot dinner. <laughs> and so I was so determined to get to Killer Cranky to give him a hot shower and a hot dinner. And we did. But afterwards, people said, "What has he got some kind of drug and alcohol problem? So, like, you know, that you had to get him out of Melbourne for his 18th. And I said, what, no, not at all. What an interesting uh, method to lower your kids' expectations of what they're going to get for their birthday. Well, I did say happy birthday. Here's your hot <laughs> So, yes. Apologies, Dick. Sorry about that. We've got about 30 seconds left. Um, um, any kind of take-home messages? Uh Look, we were going to we, we kind of framed this as saying we we're going to talk about the myths and the mysteries of crossing Bass Strait in a small boat. I'll give you a little little thing. Uh, one of the little group of islands is Hogan Island. It's called, and there's Boundary Island there. It's the only land-based territory between New Zealand and uh, New Zealand, Tasmania <laughs> and Victoria, yep. and it's Australia's shortest border at 85 meters. Wow. 85 okay. metres? Yeah, that's the width of the island. Huh. So, yeah, and that's the only land-based uh, border between Tassie and Victoria. I'm guessing there's no checkpoint or anything on it? No. Well, I haven't been... Just what, yeah. drop your fruit off at the yeah, island. Yeah. <laughs> and cross it over. No, yeah. can't take that over. Get back. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, another thing is the Sydney to Hobart never goes through Bass Strait. Everyone keeps reporting it. Yes. They stick Cro- out they in do, They do. They mm. talk about crossing Bass Strait, but Completely they don't. Completely wrong. They yeah. stick out in Tasman to go down the east coast. So, yeah, yeah. that's another wrong thing. So every time you hear that, you get oh. a little bit right, yeah. <laughs> you get triggered, Brett. Uh, <laughs> that's awesome. Hey, I can tell you about next time. Yes, yeah, about please. how to get into sailing, like dinghies and all kinds of awesome. things are the best way to do that. Yeah, so, well, the yeah. weather's getting better for it. Exactly. Yes. Time to get wet. Yep. Thanks, Brett. No worries. Your inaugural Cabin Boy Diaries. Cheers. We look forward to uh, edition number two already. <laughs> Thanks, Bron. It's time to cross to AJ for a dive report and uh, to find out about some cool things going on under the water at the moment. Good morning, AJ. Good morning, Bron. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, thank you, right? Just trying to keep uh, out of this in-and-out weather. It's been pretty weird, hasn't it? Yeah, it has been weird. It's been very kind of, you know, yo-yo weather, especially for spring. Um, are we in or are we out today with the water? Uh, ooh, there's a there's a 50-50 in. If you're lucky, you can get down to Flinders. Um, it's got a bit of a uh, west-northwest kind of uh, direction, which means the headland there at Flinders could hide you a little bit. Uh, currently, there's an outgoing tide till I think about mid-afternoon, so you might be able to get a chance to go take some uh, some more weedy sea dragon photos for Cade. Thanks, AJ. <laughs> nice plug. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, that's good. And water temperature at the moment. We mentioned bay winds. We're saying that it's on the way up. Yes, slowly, slowly, slowly. Obviously, it's not really going to uh, accelerate out of here. Um, global warming's not going to help us with that side of things. <laughs> uh, but we're still expecting around the 13, 14 in some parts at the moment, but um, slowly. Yeah, baby steps. Now, I've been, um, I've been talking up big time this clean-up event that's happening in Frankston next weekend. I, haven't given, I did give details via our Facebook page, but not on air this morning. Tell us about this amazing clean-up event. It sounds like enormous fun. Listen, everyone loves dress-ups, don't they? Oh, yes. Everyone loves clean-ups, but now we're mixing the two together. 
it's amazing. It's a pretty cool initiative. It's pretty new, uh, and we've come on to help support the uh, the Frankston edition. But effectively, you're all going to be able to dress up as superheroes or your cosplay outfits and get down there and um, and attack it. We were going to do a dive cleanup with them, but unfortunately, Frankston Pier has sustained a bit of damage from the previous storms. So safety first. So we're all just going to run amok on the sand and. Uh, and all be Superman and Spider-Man for the day. This is so cool. So this is cosplay, cosplay cleanup. And um, when we were sort of chatting to each other during the week, this is a this is a thing. Like this is not just a one-off. It's a global thing that's happening. That's right. After this event, I think their next scheduled one is in Sri Lanka. So how awesome is that? That now they're going to have this collaboration of superheroes around the world raising more um, awareness about the marine debris issues we're, we're facing. So how cool is that? And it, the best part about it, it makes it so attractive for kids to get involved as well. So obviously they're the ones that are going to be cleaning this mess up. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. wonderful. It's, oh, I love that, you know, because Comic-Con, my kids are right into Comic-Con and we go every year. And so to be able to sort of combine the fun of Comic-Con with actually doing something productive and cleaning up, you know, cleaning up our beaches and, and waterways is fantastic. Oh, and you get to wear your underpants on the outside. <laughs> How much fun is that? <laughs> We've come along just for that. <laughs> now, AJ, you're about to head off to Bali and it's uh, it's for, Bali for a purpose. Tell And we've spoken about Reef CPR before, but for listeners who maybe didn't catch that show, give us give us a bit of a snapshot about what you're going to be doing. Absolutely. Reef CPR is a program built by Dave Lennon and the Sustainable Oceans International. Um, effectively, what it is is a program over there where we can teach people how to build artificial structures and rehab uh, reef areas. So effectively, you're building them yourselves, you're deploying them, you're constructing the, the reef design based on the design principles, and you're literally watching the fish move in before the end of your dive. So we do that for about a week uh, to 10 days at a time in North Bali at the moment. It's very rewarding. So you get to do, so you actually see the fish coming in before the end of the dive. They're coming yeah, in checking out what you've set up. Yeah. If wow. We have a large deployment where we've put in say 20 or 30 structures on the single dive, we're literally getting swarmed by fish because they're looking for new habitat, um, new spaces to live. It's a territorial thing. I'm here first, nick off sort of thing. And if you do have a bit of a surface interval and come back, with that times we have to worry about more eels being underneath structures um, yeah, before there's any kind of you know plant growth or anything on it it's quite quite impressive that's amazing well look good luck with that trip and when you come back we'd love to get you back on uh to talk about it and really uh i guess the progress that's being made through reef cpr but also some of the amazing reef restoration and and general marine environment restoration programs that uh, that you're involved in and so many others are involved in as well so yeah great to talk to you when you come back good luck Thank you very much, guys. Enjoy the rest of the weekend. Thanks, AJ. You Cheers, too. AJ. See you. Bye. Bye for now, AJ. Uh, they're down on the peninsula but doing such wonderful stuff. All right. Now, without further ado, we're now going to cross to Dave Donnelly for a, uh, a whale-watching update. Um, Dave's just come back from Tonga, or is it Tonga? Good morning, Dave. Good morning, guys. Uh, it is Tonga, a soft G. Okay, there you go. We finally had that clarified. Well, thanks for coming on, Dave. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you very much. I'll yeah. see you uh, a few weeks later. So what were you doing over in Tonga? Uh, we go to Tonga annually to um, to lead um, ethical whale tourism. Uh, by ethical, I mean uh, taking into account all the best science and understanding of whale behaviour on feeding grounds and uh, apply a uh, respectful and ethical whale tourism opportunity for people who uh, would prefer not to be too intrusive with the animals. We also collect a fair bit of data. We have a little science project on the side, including flukes and acoustics uh, work, which is um, fantastic. We also just published a paper on that last week. So 
very exciting. Congratulations, Dave. It's oh, well, thank you. I was a very, very small part and a long list of authors, but uh, congratulations to our two lead authors, I must say. I reckon next time we have you on, we'll go through that paper in detail. I was hoping to touch on it today, but we're so pushed for time. I think we won't do it justice if we do it today. I've um, And I've also only just read the abstract, but it's really, um, <laughs> it's really amazing work uh, that you have been doing, and we'll pick this one up next time. Can we... Talk a little bit about the uh, ethics of whale swim tourism and particularly what's happened in Tonga with revising their regulations. Yeah, well, look, uh, whale swim tourism, is, of course, has a long history around the world. Um, the, uh, the Tongan uh, kingdom was uh, the first to introduce whale swimming as an option and it's um, located on the carving grounds for humpback whales. Um, from our point of view and others like us, um, it's important to understand the, the significance of carving grounds and the sensitivity of those cow-calf pairs in particular and their resilience or receptiveness to, um, to whale swim opportunities. Um, some of the reports have, uh, in fact all of the reports, suggest up to s- between seven and nine hours per day a cow and a calf can expect to be engaged with uh, whale swim tourism. Which, uh, of course, is not ideal for a uh, newborn calf to try and bond and build its uh, energy for a long journey back to Antarctica. So we've applied some of these learnings to produce a product which uh, allows people to still enjoy whales in that region, but to reduce, in fact, eliminate the pressure from our point of view on cow-calf pairs, which is crucially important, I think. So I guess like you're talking about ethic, like ethically being able to do this and I'm assuming part of this is sort of like a do-no-harm kind of principle. How do you determine that they are stressed by this? So obviously you've got to have some sort of background knowledge to what they would normally do and then what they do when they're stressed. So how do you go about working that out? There's, uh, there's actually quite a few studies that have been conducted on um, the, uh, the importance of nursing and cow-calf resting uh, locations. Some of those have been in Australia, but the most recent was actually in Tonga, and it was done using a drone which allowed an hour's pre-tourism op- uh, arrival of uh, natural behaviours, and then uh, during uh, course, which is just uh, mon- monitoring the behaviour of the animals when the tourist boats arrive and how they respond to that. And then, of course, when the tourist boats leave, how long they take to recover back to that original behaviour in the morning. So a very comprehensive study done by the Auckland University of Technology by some colleagues there has produced um, some excellent work and some great advice for, the, uh, I guess, the development of the new regulations for the Kingdom of Tonga. And these regulations have been well received by the tourism operators, I'm assuming, Dave? I would hope. Um, uh, <laughs> how do I say that? Uh, how do I say this? No, I would say probably not very well received. Yeah. Because it, uh, the impacts industry, on their business. Uh, well, it does. It, the industry has for a long time and continues to target cow-calf pairs for the benefit of uh, tourists visiting from all over the world. So they are the target pod structure that we're uh, that those guys were looking at um because they're easy i guess um you have to drive fast so if you low fuel costs um the animals are just mostly appearing to be quite exhausted or at least in need of rest so um are targets that don't move and are easy access 
uh, I guess if you put it that way, it's uh, it, it's probably not in their best interest to support this uh, this work. Although, having said that, quite a few do support the work. So it's a bit of a, an imbalance at the moment, but hopefully people will get, begin to understand that this is really about the animals and not about tourism. Without the animals, there is no tourism. Yeah, and a work in progress. We've got about a minute left. I just wanted to ask you just for a quick update on what's happening with um, Closer to Home, our own whale migration pattern. So we've been, uh, for our listeners who maybe didn't catch up uh, with the program last time you were in, we were talking about humpback and southern right whales in particular. They were sort of heading north up the coast. Have they uh, started to turn south again? They certainly have. In fact, this, this migration is getting longer by the year, I must say. Um, we've already got cow-calf pairs of humpback whales heading south along Wilson's Promontory. Uh, Wildlife Coast Cruises have been running some tours there and have, have logged a few sightings already of cow-calf pairs. So that's really encouraging. Um, southern rights continue to hang around the west coast in particular, but also around Port Phillip. So southern right whales still haven't left our shores for the, uh, for the Southern Ocean, so there's an opportunity there for people to see them, uh, particularly across at Warrnambool and Portland. And uh, humpback whales to be scattered across the southern coast of Victoria at the moment, um, mostly animals that may not have made the migration, in fact, sort of overwintering around here perhaps, but that's yet to be revealed. I guess some work to be done there. That's great. Well, look, uh, next time we catch up with you in the small weeks ahead, looking forward to getting into some more detail, particularly about this report that you wrote, but uh, also where things are, are tracking with the whale migrations. Uh, often in September, I head up to the New South Wales south coast, um, not happening this year, but it's always that, that kind of key time, particularly on the, as I said, the New South Wales south coast, um, whale watching from the coastline is, it's it's you know, it's one of the most exciting things that you can do because they do come in so close. So... Uh, yeah, looking forward to talking to you more in the next couple of weeks. I look forward to it, Bron, and thank you very much for uh, catch up today on the, the lovely Radio Marinara. Oh, it's always a pleasure, always a pleasure. Thanks, Thanks so Dave. much, Dave. We'll catch you soon. Wonderful. Thanks, Kate. Goodbye, guys. See you. Bye. Bye for now. Dave Donnelly there from Killer Whales Australia. He's an expert, isn't he? He is, yes. and uh, such amazing work that he is doing. Kate, over to you. Yeah, well, look, I have to admit a conflict of interest with this one as this is a project that I'm running with the Victorian National Parks Association. I have four students here from Melbourne Uni who are doing a science communication course with Dr Jen, who's going to be most likely going to be on in a couple of hours' time on Einstein A Go Go, and they were helping me put together some, uh, some work on some weedy sea dragons and some work that I'm doing. So here to help promote my own project, I have Justin, May, Ross and Ailish. I've got a simple question to kick off for listeners out there that may actually didn't or didn't realise we actually have dragons out there in our waters. But what, what dragons do we have in the sea? I think May's all geared up and ready to go. Can well, you, what are they? So the weedy uh, sea dragons... And then the uh, uh, Victorian State Marine Ambulance. And then I feel like maybe some people might not know that. But the name, another name of them is Common Sea Dragon that people might know. Yeah, and so when you talk about the Marine State Emblem, so we have our floral emblem, which is a pink heath, and we have our faunal emblem, which is the lead beater's possum. And as you're right, I think a lot of people don't realise that we actually have a marine one as well. Now, have you seen a weedy sea dragon yourself, mate? Uh, honestly, no, uh, not underwater, but I saw a lot of photos for weedy sea dragons, and then they look very, very beautiful. Have you been to the Melbourne Aquarium? Uh, not yet, sorry. Okay. So for those who can't get in the water, that's one place you can actually go and see them. And I did notice on Friday there was an article come out where they actually have some leafy sea dragons, which are closely related to the weedy sea dragons, and they're also at the aquarium just recently. Now, 
if people wanted to go and find them, I think Justin's geared up, ready for this one. If people wanted to go and find them, where would you go? Uh, they are on the coast, and they can dive in uh, from the, uh, uh, the places around the coast, uh, south of the Australian coast. Um, and you can find like certain places, um, like spots in the Port Phillip Bay, including Geelong and um, Morton and Port Sea and other places. Uh, and um, there are certain places uh, you can dive in, like locations, certain locations. Um, and I think Rose can talk about this. Yeah, cool. So um, you can normally find them in the southern coast of Australia, um, probably southwestern uh, coast as well, but also places around Sydney. Um, yeah, so, um, but you can also find them a lot in Port Phillip Bay. Uh, there's, uh, they're in a lot of places, such as Port Sea Bay. Um, uh, but then you've got uh, Sorrento, you've got Mornington as well. Um, and then you've got the other side of the bay, which is probably Port Sea, uh, no, not Port Sea, um, Queenscliff. Um, so you can find them at the cottage of the uh, sea, yes. Um, and you can also find them in places around Geelong. And there's, um, you can usually find them in kelp forests, so that's a type of seaweed. But you can also find them near piers, uh, so you don't really have to go too far to find them. So it's pretty cool. Cottages of the Sea is a beautiful dive. It is a fantastic dive. It's been a long time since I've been there, but um, a few of the dive stores around Geelong still head out there quite regularly. They say it's actually quite a hard spot to find them in that they um, pretty well camouflage. They sort of hide quite well, whereas I think places like Flinders and Portsea, they, well, they tend to sort of stand out a little bit more and there's also a few more there. But there's plenty of them around in the bay, so if you're out there, I think AJ was saying Flinders is probably the spot to go today if you wanted to go and find them. Now... People hear seahorses, sea dragons. Are they different? Are they related? Are they friends? Is anyone? Um, May, you got it? Yeah, yeah. So they are in the same family. So uh, seahorses and sea dragons are in the same family. And so they look similar. Uh, but definitely they are different. So, for example, sea dragon male, I mean, male sea dragons just carry eggs along their tails, not in their pouch because they don't have pouch. So, uh, but we, people all know seahorses just carry eggs in their pouch. So um, for, for really sea dragons, they have a small part. So ma- for male ones, just for male ones, uh, a small part on the side of their tails and will become red in color and swollen and soft and spongy to carry eggs um, after mating. Yeah, and so you're saying like the eggs actually are external as opposed to internal in the seahorses and one of the problems with that is that um, fish like caviar too it turns out. So All oh, right, they the, come and pluck them off. Yeah, there's some wow. f- actually some really interesting footage and we'll get to some of that later but they will actually try and attack the sea dragons and eat the eggs off the outside of the tail and so what they'll actually let them do is sort of let them foul up so let the algae grow and that so it kind of hides them and gives them a bit of protection so we're while we're here to talk about sea dragons we're actually here really to talk about the project that i'm doing at uh through reef watch so who's going to tell us about dragon quest oh yeah that'll be me ross um <laughs> so so dragon quest is a citizen science project uh organized by kate uh, <laughs> we, we have declared yes, yeah. up front yeah, yeah. our involvement yeah. in this. Yeah. Uh, not to break any secrets or anything, but uh, yes. Yeah, so that, it's a project to encourage people to take sight on pictures of uh, 
these weedy sea dragons. So hopefully everyone knows what they are now. Um, so you and it's the, important to take them side on for identification purposes. Yeah, that's that right? right. So yep. it's really important that it's side on so you can get those uh, really unique pe- uh, features that appear on their skin. They're, um, what are they, sort of, um, they're like polka dots or something like that that... Um, they really uh, makes them really unique. So if you take them, how unique on, exactly, Ross? Are they kind of like um, fingerprints? Yeah, yeah, like fingerprints. <laughs> exactly. Yes, thank you. Um, yeah. So if you send them out to ReefWatch, then uh, they have this mapping technology that's sort of like facial recognition. They um, they try to uh, use them, uh, use those pictures to see whether they're unique. Um, sometimes you can get pictures of the same dragon, uh, sea dragon, but sometimes they can be unique. So that adds to uh, the population, so that's a way to estimate their population. I think that's the point of the project. Yeah, that's it. And it, to try and work out the individuals themselves, so we're actually starting to get an idea of how many weedy sea dragons are out there, in particular for Port Phillip Bay, we're trying to answer that question. So we've, we've answered the how can we get involved. Ailish is just yeah. sitting there ready to go, <laughs> aren't you? <laughs> just really want to talk about weedy sea dragons. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess the main issue facing this population is like we don't have an estimate of how many weedy sea dragons there are, and divers are reporting less and less sightings. So we really need people to get involved in this citizen science project so that we can get an estimation of the population and then actually hopefully start protecting them. All right, so we're about ready to wrap up. So can I do my own plugs here? Please. Okay, so this Thursday at the Morty Alec Surf Lifesaving Club, I've got... um Pang Kwong, who's actually been involved in the BBC Blue Planet taking footage, he's going to present some of his footage at the Surf Club. It's a free event. Just jump onto Eventbrite and look up Weedy Sea Dragons. There's not too many other events talking about Weedy Sea Dragons. <laughs> I'm also going to do a bit of a rundown on what I've found so far in the project. And as I said, it's this Thursday at the Morty Surf Club from about 6 o'clock. Um, you can actually get there, grab a drink and enjoy the sunset. And if you're keen to get involved in the project and you've got photos of Weedies, please just jump onto the VMPA webpage, um, the Reef Watch, and look for Dragon Quest. And send your images through. So far, I've had over 50 divers and over 3,000 images wow. submitted. And understand there's a little bit of an incentive for people to take part in this. <laughs> there certainly is. 9.49, you're listening to Radio Marinara, as you know, here on 3RRR. And in just a moment, Kate, we've got some very special guests in studio. I know, we're going to have to get ready to go. The first time on air for, I think, all of them. So we're going to be talking about Dragon Quest. And, uh, yeah, this is uh, our answer to Dungeons & Dragons. So um, just while we get prepared for that, here's a few station announcements. Love Police announce a feast of Americana shows this October around Melbourne. Cosmic Upstate New Yorkers, the Felice Brothers with Molly Tuttle and Dee White play The Corner. Feel the old-timey goodness of a solo pokey Lafarge with new discovery Sierra Farrell at the Caravan Music Club and Northcote Social Club. And finally, legendary Jim Lauderdale and his hot pick in Nashville band play the Caravan and the Spotted Mallard. Good times this October. Love Police sponsoring Triple R. Each Monday morning on Triple R, The Grapevine explores local issues in a global context. To celebrate 10 years of the program, hosts Kalia and Dylan will be joined by Melbourne-based experimental pop and dream beat artist Sui Chen. Live from the Triple R performance space for a kid-friendly event this September school holidays. Sui Chen will be playing tracks from her latest album, Losing Linda, on Monday, September 23rd at 11.30am. Subscribers, stay tuned, check out the Triple R website or sign up to the E! News for your chance to be part of the audience. Sui Chen, live at Triple R during the Grapevine's 10th birthday, is brought to you by Mountain Goat, Triple R sponsors. 
Northcote High School needs a new library and is holding its annual comedy fundraiser featuring winning comedian Josh Ladgrove, fresh from this year's Edinburgh Festival, plus many more. Enjoy five-star comedy, delicious paella, wine, dancing and prizes. Northcote High School's comedy fundraiser, Friday, September 13, 6pm at Northcote High School. Open to the public with bookings at trybooking.com. A Triple R community service announcement. Nine minutes to ten and this is Radio Marinara and we were just listening in that station announcement to uh, the Grapevine's 10th birthday celebrations with Sui Chen. We still have a couple of double passes to give away so if you want to give us another call, 93881027. We think we might have had a technical glitch with uh, people who called just before. So give us a call back now. I'll just repeat that number slowly because I know I rattle through it. 93881027. One o two seven. We know you heard it about ten thousand times during Radiothon, so hopefully that one's sunk through. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.